Question, did you live with deep humility this week? Did you live with deep humility this week? And that is ask in light of what I would have preached on last week on humility. No, we hear God's word and seeking to apply it. The sermon this morning ties in with a focus, an emphasis we want to follow during 2019, as did last Sunday's sermon. As we're sensitive to the Lord through godly sorrow and repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets, we'll love God more deeply, we'll love others more deeply, and desire to know Christ 24-7, and we'll desire to passionately walk in the Spirit. Humility and godly sorrow are like the heart and lungs of our walk with God. A lifestyle of humility and godly sorrow is foundational to holiness. No believer is exempt for the need of humility and godly sorrow. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider a portion of your word this morning, we want to understand so that we can live in our day-by-day living, in the job, in school, at home, shopping, just wherever we are in daily life, reflecting obedience to you, reflecting Christ at work in us. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. In my years of serving as pastor, I've heard hundreds of people express a desire to change, to conquer a habit, to add to their faith, to be more Christ-like. Years later, many remain the same, in the same rut, but a little deeper in the rut. Their desire has kind of faded away. Why? I've heard many pastors and individuals in local churches say we're praying for revival and they pray for revival for years. And I wonder why doesn't revival ever come? You know, if they're praying for it and passionately pursuing it. There may be a variety of reasons given in responding to that, but just a couple of general thoughts We may be slow to realize how we neglect love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Some people may be slow to realize how there is a neglect of loving your neighbor as yourself. There may be a slowness to realize how we neglect knowing living with Christ as our life day by day. There may be a slowness to practice godly sorrow, and repentance. Stop and think about your own life. and You have to think and ponder, what in your life would you desire to be walking more closely to the Lord, more yielded to him? And I'm not talking about what you would call a New Year's resolution. I'm just talking about day-by-day living, where God has kind of said, you know, 
look at this area of life or look at that area of life as you seek to be yielded to me. And kind of follow that through what we discuss this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, anytime we read scripture, background is always important. Paul ministered in the church in Corinth for some 18 months, according to Acts chapter 18. And then Paul, soon after that, probably several years later, would have written 1 Corinthians to confront some items that were taking place in the church in Corinth and to respond to some questions that they had. Apparently they were slow to respond, so Paul had made a painful visit to them, which is mentioned in 2 Corinthians 2.1 and 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 14. So he wrote 1 Corinthians, there was a painful visit. Some time after that visit, Paul or one of his representatives was openly insulted by the Corinthians by a spokesman of what would be called an anti-Pauline clique. You know, they were against Paul. So Paul apparently, from what we can find, wrote a second letter that was very strong that we do not have today. But he wrote a second letter and confronted them very strongly. Sometime after that, Titus would have visited Corinth, And came back to Paul and gave Paul a good report that the Corinthians were responding to that strong letter. And then Paul writes 2 Corinthians. And the purpose of 2 Corinthians overall seems to be to express his great delight of their response to his letter. To also exhort the Corinthians to complete their promise for the collection of the saints at Jerusalem. They had made a promise they're going to send some money to the saints at Jerusalem and to exhort them to do that, and then also to encourage them to prepare for the visit that he was going to make to them by engaging in self-examination and self-judgment. The book kind of falls into the category of chapters 1 through 7, where Paul explains his conduct, his apostolic ministry. And chapters 8 and 9 talks about the collection for the saints at Jerusalem, And in chapters 10 through 13, Paul discussing the vindication of his apostolic ministry. He defended himself and he says, I am who I claim to be and so on. The passage we want to consider appears in the first section of 2 Corinthians, where Paul is explaining his conduct and his ministry as an apostle. Now I want you to understand that 2 Corinthians 7 appears in the context of Paul sharing his heart with the Corinthians. His love for them, his concern for them. And relations are central in both 1 and 2 Corinthians. We find in 2 Corinthians 7, 2 through 4, Paul expresses his desire. As it relates to the Corinthians Verses 5 through 7, we find Paul mentions encouragement. He was encouraged by their responsiveness. In verses 8 through 13a, we find Paul contrasts godly sorrow with worldly sorrow. And then in verses 13b through 16, Paul expresses confidence in them that they're going to be responsive. As we look at a portion of this, 
I want you to understand that what Paul writes is in the context of the freedom to repent, to have godly sorrow due to acceptance in Christ. Now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for just a moment. Again, a context of Paul writing to believers who are in Christ. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, he says, To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be holy, together with all those everywhere where who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. And notice he says, the church of God in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus. And the idea of the word there is they're called out, they're set apart. They're holy. Look also at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And verse 30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Go over to chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. And he says in verse 11, And that is what some of you were. And he had just listed thieves, homosexual offenders, slanders, and so on. But that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Then over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1, in the middle of the verse, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints throughout Achaia. Church of God in Corinth, together with the saints, treating the Corinthians as well as others as saints. Look at chapter 1 also. And verse 21. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. As Paul writes 2 Corinthians, he's writing to saints. He's writing to people who are called out. Those who are in a relationship with God, in a relationship with him and he with them. And it is in that context that Paul talks about godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And when we think about godly sorrow and we think about repentance, we're not dealing with an angry God that is keeping score and writing checks against us. We're talking about a God who has redeemed and forgiven the Corinthians and us today. And in love he may convict, and he would desire godly sorrow and repentance, as he did for the Corinthians, as he did for David and others down through history. Again, we're dealing with a relationship of love, of acceptance, the freedom to go to God with godly sorrow and repentance. So let's read together, beginning with verse 8. Second <clears throat> Corinthians 7. Second Corinthians 7 and verse 8. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, and that seems to be the letter that no, we don't have, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so you were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow 
brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. We don't know all the particulars of what happened, what the offense was, all the particulars of the need for godly sorrow. That led to repentance, but it was taking place in the context of the passage. And godly sorrow and repentance is not unique to Second Corinthians 7. You go back in the Old Testament, you'll find that repeated over and over again, the prophets called Israel to godly sorrow and repentance. Christ called the seven churches in, or five of the seven churches in Revelation 2, to godly sorrow and to repentance. But in light of the context, what is godly sorrow? Godly sorrow involves grief that one offended God and others. So as Paul would have addressed in the letter we don't have, the church in Corinth, he would have desired a sorrow that would see that God was the one who was offended, as well as others. Godly sorrow also involved, or recognizes that God is involved The offense is seen as against God. First and foremost, against God. And then our walk with God influences others. And then it would be also against others. Godly sorrow, there's not a focus on self. God is central. There's no excuse. You recall King Saul, when he was confronted by Samuel, where he's not <clears throat> wiping out the Amalekites, he had an excuse. He blamed the people. When David was confronted by Nathan, after his deal with Bathsheba, he had no excuse. Godly sorrow is not a focus in self. God is central, and there is no excuse. Godly sorrow addresses sin, both outside and inside, actions, words, thinking, beliefs, motives, and desires. A sorrow that does not address the inside is like pulling the top off of a weed. I've done that hundreds of times in my years in gardening. Go out in the garden, you're going to pull weeds, and you pull it, and you think, oh, well, that came up easy. All you got is the top. What happens? The weed grows again, and the root system becomes more firmly established. Godly sorrow deals with not only the action or the words, but the root system of beliefs, motives, and thinking. Godly sorrow is seen as God sees it. 
godly sorrow, there's a total, complete willingness to accept the consequences, whatever they may be. Godly sorrow, would you say it's coming today? Would you say it was coming in Corinth's day? Was it coming in Israel's day? Is it coming in our life? So we have a teenager who breaks a curfew. Teenager says, Mom and Dad, I'm sorry. Or a teenager comes to Mom and Dad and says, Mom and Dad, I'm really sorry. Here's why I broke the curfew. Here's some of my thinking. Here's some of my motives. Here's what I was looking for. Now we're in a different ballpark. A godly sorrow. That leads to repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is seeing action, beliefs, desires from God's perspective, not your own. As Paul addressed the Corinthians in the letter that we wouldn't have, apparently he was pretty strong in addressing them, pointing out how they had sinned, how this movement against him was not good. And there was godly sorrow that resulted in repentance. Seeing action, again, from God's point of view. Repentance involves actions, words, deeds, you know, the motives, the desires. As the Corinthians would have expressed repentance, they would have saw that their thinking in resisting Paul was actually resisting God. Because Paul was an apostle. The idea of repentance is to go undergo a change in the frame of one's mind and feeling. To undergo a change in one's mind and feeling. Now you're going in one direction. <clears throat> the Corinthians were going in resisting Paul. The Spirit of God convicted. There was godly sorrow and they made it about face. We have to respond to Paul. He's an authority that God has set up. He's an apostle. We will yield to him. There's a change in one's mind, in one's practice. A reversal of the past, that is, you're going in a different direction. Again, repentance involves the root system and the outer action. I remember a number of times when I was a kid. We sometimes would get a rusty, whatever, metal. And any time it came... When we were to paint some metal bins, Dad would always say, clean the rust off. Totally, completely. Why, Dad? Because if you don't clean the rust off, you can paint over it, and the rust will show up very quickly again. Repentance is cleaning the rust before painting. It's dealing with the inner person. And Paul saw that 
in the Corinthians, there was a godly sorrow that led to repentance. And then Paul says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. A thought question. He's writing to believers, had they not experienced salvation? He clearly states that they were saints, they were set apart. Christ was their righteousness, holiness, and redemption. They had the Spirit of God living in them. What's he talking about? Godly sorrow leads to repentance, it leads to salvation. The Corinthians had experienced this. The idea of salvation involves deliverance. It involves being set free. And this context revolves being restored to health. The idea seems to be freedom from desire and freedom from slavery to sin. It also involves in being set free from the consequences of continued disobedience. We're not talking about salvation where someone comes to Christ and there's forgiveness granted and they come into a relationship with God through Christ. We're talking about the salvation that comes from being delivered from a sin. In this case, the Corinthians, apparently resistance to Paul, were practicing. They're delivered from that. There's freedom. There's a change in their lifestyle and how they would have responded to Paul. Godly sorrow that leads to repentance that leads to salvation. Salvation is a result of repentance. Repentance began with a godly sorrow. A godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation. How many times, whether it be the Corinthians or us today, do we battle with something over and over and over again? We think, Lord, we'll ever get over this. Godly sorrow that leads to repentance seems to tie in with getting victory over something. Paul then says, it leads to salvation and leaves no regret. No regret ties in and means with nothing to be repented of. Nothing to be repented of. So the Corinthians, the time Paul writes what we have, 2 Corinthians today, They had nothing else to repent of in their relationship with Paul. They had repented. It was done. It was over. And you will find that David, when he repented in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, in the context of his sin with Bathsheba, it was over and done. There were still some consequences, but his relationship with God was good. No regrets. Nothing which is irrevocable. King Saul did not obey God. 
And he chose to blame the people. And Samuel recognized that Saul was not truly repentant. That had consequences in Saul's life till the day he died. David stands in contrast to that. And whether you say David committed a greater sin or sins than Saul is not the issue, but David repented and he had no regrets. He could go on with life. You ever stop to think about how many of the Psalms came after David's sin with Bathsheba? A fair number. The point is, there was a genuine repentance. God continued to work in his life for his glory. No regrets. No wishing they had hid their sin. When there's genuine sorrow which leads to repentance, and that leads to salvation, there's no regret. There's no thinking, boy, I wish I would have hid my sin a little longer. I wish I wouldn't own up to it. Because... No regrets also ties in with genuine freedom. When David, when the Corinthians dealt with their sin, there was a godly sorrow that led to repentance, that led to salvation. They had a freedom. They had a different freedom with Paul, that is, the Corinthians did. There was no barrier. David had that freedom with God. There was no barrier. He could respond with tremendous freedom. And the idea of no regrets is also the freedom to be open. There's nothing to hide. There's nothing to hide. Yes, I sinned. Yes, I was wrong. But I acknowledged it. So there's a willingness to let others see you as you are. No regrets involves a freedom that others that may have known about your sin. But there's a going on with life. There's not a trying to cover it. There's a freedom to let others know. But say, God worked in my life. David went on with life. He wrote Psalm 32. He wrote Psalm 51. For us today, no things that were involved. He wrote Psalm 3, which would have come after his sin. Psalm 13 seems to have come after his sin, you know. God, where are you? There's not the hiding. So someone walks up to... Ray and says, Ray, I understand that years ago you did thus and so. Is that true? And Ray says, yeah, that's true. I was wrong. I sinned. I blow it. Anything else you want to know? My forgiveness. I dealt with that, you know, with the people that were involved. So you have a couple that's married and they're having marital difficulties and there's just a lot of friction. And it's not good for an extended period of time. And 
they get reconciled and get restored. And 10 years later, someone says, I heard something about you. I heard the two of you really got into some tough things in your relationship. And the couple says, yeah, that's true. We have nothing to hide. It happened. But we had godly sorrow. We repented. We experienced salvation. So you know, that's fine. But God worked by his grace in our life. We confessed to him. We confessed to one another. And we processed it with our kids. And we've gone on with life. We've learned from it. And we hope others can learn from it. That's the idea of no regrets. When we hide, when we don't want others to know how we may have failed, <clears throat> it would seem to imply that godly sorrow, which leads to repentance, that leads to salvation, was not present. Because there's a Protection. Why could David write the Psalms that he did after his sin? Because there was no regrets. You find in Scripture, God holds up the sins and failures of his children quite often. First Corinthians contains <clears throat> the church in Corinth having divisions, having a tolerating man living in open immorality, apparently having some issues with the Lord's Supper, but yet God was at work. There's not the hiding. There's an openness, a freedom. He says at the end of verse 10, but worldly sorrow brings death. The contrast to godly sorrow that brings about repentance, that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. The contrast is A worldly sorrow. And we're not going to discuss that this morning. But basically, it's the idea that there's no genuine sorrow from the inside out. And when it leads to death, the context doesn't seem to be tied in with physical death as much as it deeply influences relationships. Humility brings us to the point of being willing to say, I've sinned. And then we process that. And in light of things that happen throughout life, I think we need to practice a lifestyle of godly sorrow. Repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. 
remember when I first moved into the area, <clears throat> ran into, ran into them, I met them. <laughs> I got talking over time and said, oh, we're praying for revival in our church. And five years later, we're praying for revival in our church. And years after that, we're praying revival in our church. And I thought, well, why don't you practice godly sorrow, repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets? Practice it day by day. As a body of believers, as homes, as individuals, a lifestyle of that type of freedom. For me to go to Ruth Ann, <clears throat> when I've been maybe a little short with her, knowing my relationship with God is secure, knowing my relationship with Ruth Ann is secure, I'm just saying, honey, the way I responded to you 10 minutes ago was not good. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I already processed that with God. That brings freedom. I don't have to carry that around any longer. So a neighbor does something and there's some bitterness there and you carry that around for weeks and weeks and that affects your response to your neighbor. And God finally deals with you and you say, okay, God, I surrender, you know. I'm sorry. I'm turning from this. I'm dealing with the thinking, the beliefs, the motives and my attitude towards my neighbor. Now I'm going to go to my neighbor and say, my bitterness towards you came through. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? A lifestyle of humility that leads to godly sorrow. Repentance. And salvation which leaves no regrets. As we practice, develop a lifestyle Godly sorrow, repentance, that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. There's a sensitivity to God. Here I am driving down the road. A driver passes me and cuts off, cuts in front of me too quickly. And a thought goes through my mind that is not good. And immediately following that thought is, hey, Dan, what's your attitude towards that driver? That comes from a lifestyle of godly sorrow and repentance. Mom calls about the same issue for the fifth time within a week. And I told her the first time how to respond and how to process it. And on the fifth time around, she calls, she says, Dan, I want to talk to you about, and I think, oh yeah, here we go again. I already told her. And a second or two later, the Lord says, look, Dan, your attitude towards your mom is wrong. See, that comes from a lifestyle of godly sorrow, repentance, There's a sensitivity to the Spirit. As we seek to walk in godly sorrow, 
repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets, we're often prone to think about what we think about, what we believe, and the why underlying our words and our actions. Why am I this way? Why did I respond so quickly? What's going on in my heart? And responding to that. And it also results in addressing sin on the level at which it took place. Whether it be one's mate, whether it be one's children, whether it be one's parents, or whether it be a neighbor, or whether it be another believer. I don't keep track of how often I go and correct things with other people. But I've done my fair share over the years. Because godly sorrow that leads to repentance addresses sin on the level at which it took place. If it involved one person, yes, deal with that one person. If it involved three, Yes, deal with it on that level. If it involved 10, deal with it on that level. And that's what Paul was encouraging the church in Corinth to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now address it on that level. Simple question. Do you desire to pursue godly sorrow? With repentance following that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. Where are you at? Where are we at as a church? Where are you at as a family? You make choices, I make choices. Let's pray together. Father, it would be our desire as a body of believers to pursue humility along with godly sorrow that brings repentance, that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets in our lives. Not that it hasn't been present in the past, but some items we want to keep in focus as we live in 2019 for your glory. And Father, as we live humbly before you, as we practice godly sorrow and repentance, we know that our lives will reflect a growing Christ-likeness, which appeals to thirsty people, to people in our severe of influence. And we recognize we haven't arrived, but we're in process. And as you work in our lives, may we be sensitive to sharing with a neighbor, a family member, a co-worker, another student of how you're working in our lives as they see how we live and respond. You give us opportunities to share the living water, Christ, the bread of life, Christ, the true vine Christ with others in our day-by-day living. We know your spirit works in the lives of people. 
and then there's a sensitivity. We want to walk through those doors and point people to Christ. Realizing that as we walk with you, there'll be a sensitivity. We love you. We desire to be faithful. And we know that you are at work in us, as Philippians 2 says, you've begun a good work in us. And you continue that work until the day of Christ. And we respond with a desire to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.